Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad and with me is Benjamin Hunting. Say hi, Ben. Greetings, fellow humans. Ben and I are the type of people who describe roller coasters as being like Mini Coopers. You know, it handles like a Mini Cooper, right? I have absolutely never done that. Oh, my mistake. Just like how everyone else says, you know, the Mini Cooper handles like a like it's on rails. Nah, we do it the other way around. At least I do. When he's not professionally reviewing roller coasters for publications that don't exist, Sammy Hajasad is actually a very competent and well-respected automotive journalist. And I am also an automotive journalist, and between the two of us, we think about cars an inordinate, minima- an inordinate amount of time. And More as than re- we think about our words. <laughs> yes. And as a result, we put together this podcast, which is a lot of fun, and it's basically a brain dump for us every week. All the weird, interesting, and fun things we get to do with cars, think about cars, and talk about cars during that seven-day period. And uh, I actually got a chance to step outside the normal scope of what I do uh, this week. Mm. Uh, Sammy and try something that was um, new to me, but very familiar to I'm sure at least some of our listeners. Um, I recently began contributing to Roadkill. Well, recently, for the last six months, <laughs> I've been contributing to Roadkill, which is a uh, very unusual publication that is devoted to not brand new cars or sports cars or luxury cars. It's actually devoted to cars you can buy cars you can afford and cars you can have fun with. And uh, a lot of the spirit of the publication is about um, making the best out of unusual vehicles or uh, smaller budgets and building really unique uh, projects. And one of those unique projects was what I got to drive this week, which is a 1978 Chevrolet Monza, Monza Spider, I should add, (laughs) that is supercharged by five leaf blowers sitting in the trunk. That is a very unique way of supercharging a car. Is it effective? Does it work? Well, that's the thing. See, the reason this car was built, it was built three years ago. And I'll explain why I'm only driving it now. Uh, There is a reason. But uh, it was built three years ago because uh, Freiberger and Finnegan, the two gentlemen who uh, spearhead the videos on Roadkill and do a lot of the writing um, with uh, Alana Scher, who is the editor, they wanted to take this internet myth, which is, you know, electric superchargers. We've all seen them on eBay. We've seen them in forums. It's basically a 12-volt fan that you put in your intake. And for people who don't understand how physics works, the idea that this fan would somehow improve performance by spinning really rapidly and shoving more air into the car um, allowed them to be marketed as superchargers. Well, in reality, a supercharger doesn't put more air in your car by blowing it faster. It actually compresses the air so there's more oxygen in a in the same volume that's being taken into your car's intake. And then with more oxygen in the same amount of volume, you can add more fuel and create more power. However, it turns out that if you take five Husqvarna leaf blowers and run them all at once into the intake of a 5.7 liter uh, carbureted Chevy Monza, you can create more horsepower on a dyno because what happens is not you're, you're not compressing the air, right? You're not supercharging the car, but you are increasing airflow. It's uh, more CFM into the, into the engine in theory. And the, the guys were able to prove that this worked on the dyno. They made something like 50 more pound-feet of torque compared to when the uh, the leaf blowers weren't running. Nice. Yeah, and uh, horsepower, the, the gains were a little more minimal, at 12, 15 horsepower. Uh, but still, they're actual gains. It actually happened. It's real. So uh, they busted open an internet myth, and then they, they took the Monza to a land speed contest where they did a, like a running mile. 
and uh, the the difference between running the the leaf blowers and not running the leaf blowers turned out to be about two and a half miles per hour at the top end. Ooh, I think the okay. car topped out yeah 139 miles an hour. So uh, it it really wasn't worth it. Like <laughs> it was a considerable. Well, there's a considerable amount of fabrication that went in, into right. the. It wasn't. It wasn't expensive to buy all the leaf blowers. It was like 3,500 bucks in total. Ooh. But they had to, you know, build this giant tube and and um, run it through the firewall and and it, it was an, an involved project. So the theory was the reason it didn't generate power in in real driving at high speeds is because the the engine was already pulling in so much air that the extra air added by the leaf blowers at that speed didn't help. Okay. So, all of this to set up the Monza and set up why I was in Pittsburgh okay, or just yeah. north of Pittsburgh. Uh, I went to uh, Jeff Lutz's garage. He's a he Lutz race cars builds a lot of um, very cool projects mm-hmm. for drag racers, etc. Uh, pretty much everything in that building was twin turbo, big block, and 3,500 horsepower. So it was a little intimidating, but uh, they're very great people. And they recently brought the Monza out of retirement because, frustrated with the lack of power they were generating with the leaf blowers, uh, Finnegan and Freiberger decided to build something they called the Boost Caboose. Okay. So um, imagine, Sammy, (laughs) if you will, a supercharger you could hook up to your car, any car, like a trailer, and then tow it behind you and just generate boost wherever you went. That's a very interesting idea. I don't know if that would work really well, would it? I mean, the weight of the extra. What makes you say that the boost caboose is perhaps not the best solution? It to this sounds problem? like an inefficient solution. I mean, when you add more weight to uh, to a vehicle, it has to work harder to pull that sort of thing, uh, like what? that uh, towing around a, a boost caboose there. Well, what if I told you that the Boost Caboose supercharger was being powered by a 350 cubic inch Chevy V8? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that and that this this engine vents direct almost directly to the atmosphere atmosphere through Viking horn style exhaust <laughs> headers that just stick straight up in the air. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you you've, you've the, captured my attention. I'll tell you. So what I I think that you know. The boost caboose is the perfect idea for anyone who already has a giant um, rubber tube coming out of the back hatch of their car that attaches directly through the passenger compartment and into the engine on top of your uh, Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be a great idea for those people. That crowd is well served by the boost caboose. And to be fair, when it was eventually built and run, it did did take 20%. It was 20% faster um over a time distance than simply not having the boost caboose running so it generates boost it works it also catches fire breaks belts and uh just generally smokes all the time and it's incredibly loud so those are the trade-offs but uh it's not like it's super dangerous that sounds okay i mean it sounds manageable i mean everyone knows how to use you know how to how to not inhale smoke and how to you know exactly tell somebody about a fire that they should be concerned about you know like look that's a fire and like, most don't, of, just don't walk near that and most of the smoke is to be honest in the rearview oh mirror. right so how can it really it's you're towing it how can it True. really hurt you it's not it's not a clear and present danger it's more like a nagging sense of dread that maybe something bad's going to happen on the trailer that has the v8 engine running directly behind your I car don't but no, this could work in any way other than a straight line in terms of any like particular game how would you slow this product down how does does it have brakes on it too 
Uh, no, it could. I guess you could you could add them. Okay. I mean, I mean, I think you're asking a lot of questions. Oh, right, right. Sammy, I think you're. Right. I think you're I think really. I'm, over, you're I'm not overthinking exact, it, right? I think you're not on board. <laughs> That's the kind of vibe I'm getting. Oh, cool. Uh, with your boost caboose questions, but so. That's a whole bunch of setup, a whole bunch of exposition, and um, I I ended up in Pittsburgh to photograph the uh, the Monza because they're doing we're doing a feature on it for the magazine, and uh, we had a lot of video of the car, but we didn't have any actual uh, photos. So that was it was really cool to basically the, the car itself. I mean, it's it's not in great shape. It's it's uh it was it was bought cheap because it was the idea was cheap speed. So it's got holes in the floor and. Um, it's got some, you know, questionable arrow and, uh, it's, uh, part of the dash is missing. And, um, if you want to run it, you have to keep the headlights on because that's the fuel pump is attached to the headlight switch. And it has a fuel return line that goes over the roof of the car back into the, the gas cap, which is missing. What? Hold on, hold on. Let's and talk about a... some of these things here. It's not necessarily a bad <laughs> thing to have to keep the lights on. I mean, that sounds, that sounds like a safety feature in my opinion, right? No, I think okay. you're right. It is a safety but what about feature. Because the... if you turn the lights off, not only is it dark, but the car turns off also. Okay. And then second of all, when you say the dash is missing, like, is, have we put out an ad on a milk carton or something? No, it? it's just or that is part, it just... Of the, part of the dash is now behind the seats. Like, that's just how okay. it is. And you just got to accept that's it. That's an interest. Honestly, I've always thought that dashboards would be better behind seats. I mean... And what's fun, well, what's fun too about the boost caboose, um, and even when you're running the uh, leaf blowers, is the the boost is manually controlled. So there's a there's a an exhaust a ball valve inside the passenger compartment with a lever, right? <laughs> and and it vents the boost into the passenger compartment until you pull the lever down and send it to the engine at the exact moment. It's kind of like hillbilly nitrous if you want to think about it, because um, you don't you don't take advantage of the boost until you absolutely need the boost because you respect hillbilly boost. nitrous. It's a great way to do yeah. to 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 explain this. I love it. <laughs> and also that there's no gas cap, but there is a paper okay. towel that's right. that's stuffed into the gas opening. I guess you could say. And there's no gas cap door either, so it's it's very accessible. Hmm. If there was an emergency, you could quickly access the gas. Tank. Also, this, these paper towels could be used in other you know like hygienic ways right we could clean up messes yeah, or, or, or you could fight zombies by lighting them on fire and throwing them <laughs> right um but the car driving the car is it's an experience i mean it's rumbly it has a has a pretty gruff exhaust note it's it's fun i mean the monza i was taking pictures of it and it's just so ugly from certain angles that i wanted to adopt it and take it home and like I was telling someone that I wanted to just wrap it in a blanket and feed it brownies and cookies and tell it everything's going to be okay because it's not an attractive vehicle. But, um, but uh, it was fun. It's a lot of fun to drive. And, you know, you and I, we both drive a lot of brand new cars. That's kind of kind of our jam. Uh, so it was nice to step outside of that and uh, and just drive something that was it was built for a very specific pur- purpose and it works well. Um, well, okay. It, it works. It works. It's a, it's a functioning <laughs> it works. product. That's, I mean, it is a functioning product. It moves. And it is, more than, it is an idea whose time has come. And it exists in metal and steel and glass and, and boost. Okay, can you give me a quick summary here? Did the modifications that were done to this vehicle, did they make the vehicle in any way better than however the car was when it didn't have any modifications? I would say yes, because on its own, a, a Monza Spider is not that interesting of a okay. car, but once you put five leaf blowers in the back of it, 
everyone wants to talk to you about your mons. Everyone. And it also helps that it has giant roadkill stickers on the side too, which tends to attract a lot okay, of people. Okay, and did it? Can you talk to me about some of the some of the attention that you got? Were people paying attention? Did anyone come and talk to you while you were t- trying to take photos of it? Um, uh, local local law enforcement was briefly interested in the car, but I managed to uh, head that okay. off and <laughs> contain that situation. Uh, were they interested uh, in the car or how fast it was going? They were kind of interested in why I was parked where I was and what I was okay. doing. Um, <laughs> And, but then it started to rain, and I think it was just too much of a hassle. So okay, and you never had any, and you never had any problems with this thing. It it worked. It ran. You know, it ran perfectly. The the only problem I had was I had the boost valve closed inside mm-hmm. the car without the without the uh, leaf blowers on, and I because I had been photographing the handle in various positions because that's how dedicated I am to my craft. Yeah, sand. I understand. And um. I left it closed and I tried to drive the car and it started bucking on me and I couldn't figure out why the throttle response was so bad. And then I was like, oh, open up the valve. Because, I mean, it's, it, you know, I shouldn't, it's, it's obvious, right? So I flipped the, <laughs> I flipped the valve open and suddenly, suddenly I had power Was that again. the first thing you tried but, or? <laughs> it was, it was in fact the first thing I tried. I, I the, the valve's very big and it's painted green and it's easy to see. But no, the car worked really well. It's, it drove great. Um, well, I mean, it ran really well. It, it has a bunch of uh, characteristics that are not exactly safe. Like when you put the clutch in, it moves to one side of the car. And when you accelerate, like the front of the car wants to go somewhere where the rear of the car isn't. So I'm, it kind of I'm moves sorry. around on you while you you're gotta, driving. You got to back up. When you put the clutch in, what happens? The car moves to, to one side. What do you side. mean it, it, moves, it's what I, it moves to the side? It's what I would call an active <laughs> chassis control. Where um, you can interact with the suspension on an almost individual basis. Yes, okay. Because all of the money went into the leaf blowers right. and the fab work. This, it's a stock Monza Spider underneath. There's, there's nothing that's really... I mean, I know that's an impressive thing to start out with. But uh, yeah, it's it doesn't have any uh, specific modifications to handle the gobs and gobs of extra power that the Boost Caboose was giving it. Okay. So. Um. I mean, even the trailer hitch was custom made. And did you put your foot down in this thing? Did it go? Like, it did it? Did it feel like it? It added does go. It's any a, significant, like especially a, the torque numbers that you mentioned. That sounds significant. You should be able to feel that. So, right? I did not drive it with the boost caboose attached. I only drove it with the the okay. blowers. Um, the boost caboose is still in LA. I don't know why, but that's where it is. And uh, it's probably for the best because I'm pretty sure with a an unmuffled. Uh, 350 running behind me on a trailer, I probably would have attracted a lot more law enforcement intention, attention than I actually okay. did. And like, how can you describe this to somebody who's never heard of or or, or seen a, Mon- a Monza, Spi- uh, Monza Spider um, or, or any of this roadkill stuff? How would you describe this? Is this does this look like a hack job? Does it look like a like a, a finished product, like something you would see at SEMA or some ridiculous show like that? No, 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 no. This is not. This is not a SEMA oriented. Not that. Not vehicle. that all the cars I mean, at SEMA are particularly the cleanest, uh, like make. But you know, look, roadkill is about fun and it's about results, right? right? So the Monza only has one windshield wiper. Um, not that it matters because they don't work. <laughs> uh, like I said, it's got holes in the floor. It has a clear plastic tube running from the engine bay over the roof to the to the gas tank in the back. It has a giant snuffleupagus. Uh, tube that can run out the back to attach to the boost caboose. It's fu- it's form it's function over form here. Uh, that's that's the name of the game. So if if you're looking for a concourse quality car, that's not what Roadkill's all about. 
Now, this brings up an interesting point. This You enjoyed this. You liked this, right? You had a blast. It was a hell of a lot of fun to drive, okay. yes. yes. Despite definitely. it not being particularly, like, it didn't make any sense, like, as you mentioned. Uh, well, it doesn't have to make, I mean, does something have to make sense to be fun? I guess so. I guess not. I mean, uh, but, you know, it's not the, the usual driving experience that you would have. And, I mean... It doesn't sound particularly safe. It doesn't sound like something I'd want to drive every single day. But the experience alone sounds like uh, like something that's worthwhile, right? Oh yeah. Well, it's. It, I mean, it's it's again, it, it's not safe at all. Um, <laughs> there, there is a. They did build a firewall between the uh, leaf blowers and the passenger compartment because there is fuel running the leaf blowers, right? They all have their own fuel tanks, uh, so you, you want to make sure that's safe. But I mean, we're, we're still talking about a third tier '70s muscle car. I mean, or not even a muscle car, like a like a hatchback from the '70s. Um, it's not the aesthetic of the show and, and of the magazine. It, it's again, it's about what you can achieve. It's about how much fun you can have with the money that you have, the cars that you can afford. It, it, these are all real world projects, uh, which I think, you know, personally, uh, I, I have a real world project. My dad's mm-hmm. and it is not a concourse level show car and it never will be. And I, I, I think we discussed on a previous show uh, the troubles that I had getting it insured and inspected and, and what I had to deal with the mentality that the cars have to be these um, 100 point uh, perfect restorations these days because Pebble Beach and all the auction houses have trained us to look at classic cars and performance cars as being investments rather than something you drive and have fun with. And I think that part of the appeal of Roadkill is that it allows you to to actually do what the cars were intended to 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 do, which is be driven and um, who cares if it, the paint is faded and who cares if there's a hole uh, in the floor of the fender or who cares if your hood is painted flat black because, you know, you, you bought it from a junkyard and, and it was the only thing you could afford. Um, th- that's part of the hobby that I really strongly identify with. And I think that there's a huge number of people out there who are, um, I, I even hesitate to use the word making the best because that's not that's not how it is. They're, they're building the best cars that they can uh, with the money that they have and the resources that they have. And I personally don't have access to air tools and a lift. If I'm working on my car, it's I'm on my back in my garage under a jack. And uh, sometimes the concrete is super cold and it sucks. But I mean, that's just what I have to do to get things done. And um, I I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah, I mean, that sounds that's really admirable. I I really like that uh, aspect, especially when it comes to roadkill and their their sort of projects. They're all really... um, possible with like just the amount of knowledge that you can find and uh, the amount of money that I think anybody can can generally scrounge up. Um, can you answer me a few quick questions about this Monza though? Um, what does it sound like? What can it sound oh, it like sounds with like... five leaf blowers in it? <laughs> it sounds like someone's blowing leaves behind your head, but like five people are blowing <laughs> leaves behind your head. Right. And, and in front of you, there's a V8 rumble. So it's kind of like a disconnect. And the other weird thing is because, like, they're leaf blowers, right? They're running full yeah. throttle all the time, which which means when you rev the engine, it doesn't change the sound <laughs> of the leaf blowers. So there's a, there's that. I mean, that's that's an unusual thing. So it's kind of, yeah, it, it's 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 kind of like an electric motor in that, that you know, it's instant on torque. Yeah. <laughs> Except in this case, it's instant on CFM. <laughs> um, that's insane. I, I can imagine that being, did you wear ear, did you wear earplugs for this at all? No, no, I I should okay. have, but I didn't. All right, next time, okay. Make sure to pack. Make next sure time. to pack your... The next time I'm driving the Roadkill Monza, I'll probably have okay. Perfect. Books. That's amazing. That's a really interesting. That's a really interesting story, and I'm uh, I'm really like 
I can't believe that you did it. I'm so glad to hear it. <laughs> the, the, the one, one more thing I just want to mention about the whole roadkill concept is if it hadn't worked, like if the Monza had blown up or if it had, um, you know, generated no power or if the boost caboose caught fire, I mean, or, I mean, caught more fire than it did. Um, it doesn't matter because the part, the fun part is doing it and trying it and failing or not failing. Like it's not, there's no, it's not about the results. It's, it's more about taking risks and doing fun stuff. And um, I think that's something that's, that's cool to remember too, when you're trying something for your own car, um, you could tune your car, suspension, engine, whatever, take it to the track, try something new and it doesn't mm. work. Um, and for the most, I remember something, there's this guy named Mark Donahue, who most people are familiar with. Very, very uh, successful racer with Roger Penske, uh, Trans Am, a bunch of stuff. And I remember he wrote a book called uh, The Unfair Advantage. And um, to him and Penske, those words uh, reflected the fact that every racer is always looking to improve their car to the point where they have an unfair advantage over someone else, whether that's through aerodynamics, suspension, engine tuning, whatever. But... He talks about how in the 70s, in the late 60s, they didn't know anything at all about suspension. They had no understanding of it. They would they, they would change springs for stiffer springs. They would change shock valving. They would uh, move things around on the car, chassis pickup points, all sorts of stuff. And it would do things to the car, like it would change how it handled, but they didn't understand <laughs> why. They had a skid pad. And they didn't understand why they had a skid pad. And they would take the car out on the skid pad and they would notice that, you know, the changes they made would change how it handled on the pad. But then they wouldn't be able to translate that into race results. It was okay. random. Um, so the reason I'm saying this is because Mark Donahue is one of the – he's he's unfortunately passed away. But he was one of the smartest people ever to get behind the wheel of a race car uh, in terms of tuning and um, just – uh, getting a car locked down so that it was performing the best it possibly can. And if Mark Donahue had no idea what the hell he was doing and was totally comfortable being open about that, then I think that people who go to the track on their own, tuning their own cars, who don't have near the level of engineering background or experience that Donahue had, should feel good about what they're doing. Right. That's a great way. That's a great relationship. I like that. That's really cool. And I, you know what? I don't make any, I don't make any modifications to my car except for changing the tires. And uh, when I go to the track, I absolutely have a blast. And uh, I think that can be said for almost anyone who does that. I'm sorry, sorry, I ranted so long on that. It's just something I've been thinking about for. Quite no, a while. you got to You got to talk about what you're, how you're feeling, man. And I think that it's also especially cool that Roadkill and uh, this experience has has given, has really like spoken to this part of you. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely um, a very fun and a cool way to get in touch with that. And and you know that's how I grew up too. I mean, I I I've owned a lot of cars, but I've owned a lot of shit boxes, to be honest. Um, and when I was a teenager, I would buy five hundred dollar cars, eight hundred dollar cars, and drive them as long as they would last me. And when when you're in that kind of situation, you learn how to how to make do. With whatever you have, um, I remember I had a I had a Chevy Celebrity, and the um, the passenger side window was held up by a hockey puck that I'd wedged in between the window frame and the glass because like the motor had completely failed and drop the glass would drop down into yep. the door. And that same that same car had a heater blower that wouldn't shut off, <laughs> so you would turn the car off at night, in the middle of the night in the winter, and there was something there was a bad contact or a bad ground. And uh, the heater blower would just keep going, and I, I had a, a hammer or a hatchet that I kept in the car, and I would bang on the, the blower motor until it stopped. And I remember one time I was banging on the blower motor, and the head of the hatchet flew <laughs> off into the engine bay, 
And it was totally pitch black, but I didn't want to start the engine again the next day, you know, like, because there was this piece of metal inside the engine somewhere. I had spent, like, an hour looking for it. Anyway, this is pre-cell phone flashlight, Yikes. so... Uh, I can I can only relate in one way. I had a I had an old C class, and um, I don't know what the deal with its uh, seat controls were. But uh, anytime you changed it, it would blow a fuse, and I shared it with my folks as well. Uh, whenever they needed to take it to the to the station or whatever, and uh, every time I would get back in it, I'd have to put it in a new fuse every single time, and I just always had this bag full of fuses, <laughs> like. <laughs> Just jingling yeah. in your pocket like you're some kind of fuse no, no, dealer. No, no, they were in the they were in the uh, in the glove box. Like that was all that was in there. It was ridiculous. Oh man, I had a I had a Volvo uh, 240 wagon, worst car I've ever owned, I think. Um, and it it had uh, those European fuses, you know, the ones that look like bullets. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it had a it, the fuse panel was completely exposed in the passenger kick panel. No, sorry, driver's kick panel. I think I can't remember exactly, but I just remember it was totally exposed, and it would get wet and it would it would short and spark oh all the time because yeah, because it was winter and like stuff would splash up into it, and it was the worst. And I had I was always replacing fuses there too. Here, oh, that's crazy. Oh, well, you know what? You, what's that? I was just going to say that we should probably do a, a shitbox podcast one day where we just reminisce about the horrible cars we've I mean, I haven't had too many. I mean, that was just – in fact, I loved my C-Class. It was great except for that one. I mean, and something was always wrong with the stereo and the CD player, and it got stuck in the snow a lot. <laughs> that was – I had a I had an 86 F-150 with a hole in the driver's floor, and when you would go through a puddle, the water would go up through the hole, over through the through the carpeting, and splash you in the face, like directly in the face. That's like you know when you're driving, that's refreshing. You're driving beside like a median or something, and there's oncoming traffic, and they hit that puddle, and it slaps yeah. the front of your car with a huge wave. It was exactly like but that. It was like a wave car. of water <laughs> inside the car through the floor, and there was nothing you Jeez. could do. That's beautiful. Uh, aren't we glad yeah. that the modern cars don't seem to have these much, this much problems in, in at least this soon in their in their. Well, they you know they have different more expensive problems. That's I think. true. Um, and you know what? Why don't we why don't we talk a little bit uh, about some modern cars if you if you would indulge me a little bit. Um, sure, I'll, I'll I'll indulge. Here you we go. Me. I I had a chance to drive a 2017 uh, Mercedes C300 uh, Maddox sedan. And um, you know what? I've always been in love with the sports sedan class. I, I always think they're they're one of the most well balanced um, cars you can buy, except for they're starting to get very expensive recently. Have you noticed that? I I don't think starting is the word to use. I think they've been expensive for a while. I think ever since these uh, entry level cars like the CLA, the A3, um, have have like bumped up the price of these sports sedans, and I think that's a that, that's really I mean, that's made for some higher quality sports sedans. Uh, I absolutely love the, the new C, uh, C-Class. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think, it's, it, I think it sets a really strong benchmark in that segment uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of driving dynamics, interior quality, and even uh, design. Well, I, I mean, I do like the C-Class a lot. I think it's a, an excellent entry-level luxury car. I don't know if I would call it a sports sedan. I think that... In my opinion, with this generation of car, I think Mercedes went back to doing what they did best um, with the entry level, and that's building a very, very comfortable, very smooth car. It's almost like a replica of the, the S-Class in terms of um, uh, dynamics. I found that... Um, but shrunk down. From like, hand, I, love, I, I think that's really cool. Yeah, I, I just don't find it handles like a like a 3-series. 
But I think that that's good. I think that it's time that car companies stop trying to play follow the leader with BMW and just be their own, you know, thing. Well, that's why. And I think Mercedes really did that. With well, that's why I mentioned like it's a really good balance of like a fun to a car you could enjoy driving every single day, uh, and then when you don't need to, you know, push it uh, to its, you know, to its limits or to have like a lot of fun, you just want to drive it comfortably. These are the sort of cars that can do that as well. And I think all, all the cars in that segment are are doing that really well. Uh, maybe with the exception of the ATS, which I think is always like a blast to drive, but kind of stiff at the same time. Um, I think it depends. I think it depends too on the model you got, you buy, you know, like, cause I mean, there's, there's softer ATSs and there's, there's stiffer ATSs and it's, it's the same with a three series or a C class or, or an A4. You know, there's always going to be the model that, um, th there's that balance right between, uh, handling, like you said, handling and, and jarring your mm -hmm. teeth. Uh, and it, it's something that, you know, when you modify a car, it's very easy to make it no longer fun to drive on the street by going too far. And I think on the option sheet, you can probably do that with a sports sedan, too. Uh, and I'll just uh, I'll just quickly uh, run through some of the, the notes I had on the on the vehicle. It had a twin, uh, sorry, a turbocharged two liter engine, which uh, apparently only makes 250 some odd horsepower, but feels way more than that. It, it, it absolutely did not feel like a, like an underpowered car in any way or form. Um, and it had a really solid seven-speed uh, transmission that uh, that always seemed to be in the right gear for everything I needed it to be. Um, and I think that's that's a really rare thing when it comes to a car that has, uh, I think, over six six speeds. Uh, sometimes you feel like they're they're always trying to hunt for the right gear, and I didn't have that experience. I think the um, you really hit the nail on the head with the when you talked about the Turbo Four. Um, these engines, these turbocharged small displacement engines, they're they're being tuned so that the torque comes on as low as possible, and you really get um, access to the the full amount of torque from the engine almost immediately, and that really helps the cars feel quicker. Than actually, I uh, I overestimated how much power it had. I said 250. It's actually under 250, which uh, again okay. I I just can't believe that number. But the response. But how much how much torque is about 250 yeah, pound feet? it's got a, it's uh, around that in terms of torque. Yeah, see, that's that's a really solid number um, for a, for a car the size of the the C class, and, and that really helps. And I think all the almost every turbo far I've driven in that segment feels the same. Two hundred and seventy three pound feet of torque, actually. Oh yeah. wow! See, that's that's you know, I mean, <laughs> go back ten years, and that's close to what a <laughs> you know a four point six liter Mustang yeah. was making. That was they were putting out three hundred pound feet of torque. So now you have that from a two liter turbocharged engine, a four cylinder engine, no less. Um, and that's that's how far we've come with this technology, and the, you know the ability with a turbo to move the power band where you want to put it is is fantastic. Um, one of the interesting parts of this car, though, is the um, the drive mode selector, the amount of different drive modes you can have, and uh, an individual mode where you can kind of customize each in, uh, setting individually, which is cool if you've got the time to set it all up exactly how you'd want to do it. I didn't exactly have that um, opportunity. Uh, I was kind of pressed with my for my time in it, but uh, I think that's really interesting. I like that idea of customizing car um, the way you you want and you need it. Now, did your car? Speaking of customization, did your car come with the perfume? No, it didn't, and uh, I was the o I was oh, the only that's... smelly thing in the car. <laughs> that's a missed opportunity. <laughs> I I think that that is. I mean, it's a feature for which I have no use, but I think it's one of the most interesting and individual features you can get in a car. And I, kudos to Mercedes-Benz for, you know, walking their own path. And hey, for those of you who are not familiar with it, um, on the C-Class and actually on, on more than one Mercedes model now, you can get a uh, a dispenser in the glove compartment 
that uh, has different moods, and that's that's the name of that Mercedes is assigned to its various perfume smells. There's like a city mood and like a nighttime mood, I think. And anyway, it's a <laughs> I little. I don't want to know what the yeah. nighttime mood could possibly be. <laughs> well, it, it's a little canister that you stick in, and it, it it gives you perfume through the vents, through the the uh, the um, heating vents and cooling vents. And uh, like I said, I don't need it, but uh, it's neat and it's funny and it's unusual. And um, I'm all for car companies doing something different that no one else is doing. Um, that I, I 100% agree with you on that. But can we talk about one more thing before I change uh, the, the change subject on this car? What's the what is the deal with um, with with stocks and uh, Mercedes Benz? Um, the, so here I'm gonna I'm gonna sum it up for you real quick. We've got the uh, transmission gear selector uh, is is a stock on the on the steering wheel, um, and we've also got the cruise control, and the usual. Um, that's sorry, the cruise control is also a stock with a with a ton of functions on it. Ours actually had adaptive cruise control, um, so you have like all these different things to do. You toggle it up, you toggle it down, you push it in, you turn it, you you twist it and turn it. It sounds like a bop it now, but um, <laughs> bop it yeah. reference. Wow. And uh, and then you've got the usual um, turn selector. I mean, sorry, turn indicator as well. And there, these are three different stocks all around the car uh, in addition to the usual controls that you have. So a, a paddle shifter on the steering wheel and then the uh, controls for the gauge cluster and, uh, and audio system. It bears mentioning, too, that the uh, the transmission stock that you described is not fun <laughs> to use. Um, it, it has a, what? correct me if I'm wrong, push button. Push button park, park. Right? yeah. On the very end of the You pull yeah. it down. You pull it down to go into mm-hmm. drive. I think you push it up to go into reverse. And then when you want to park it, you hit right. the button. I also think it will automatically park if you turn the car off, but I'm not I'm sure. I'm too afraid that. to do that. It also automatically puts the parking brake on every time you turn it off, which is a setting that uh, you'd have to enable or disable. So it's just, it feels flimsy and it's easy to get confused. I mean, I have a simple mind and when I'm using a stock like that, it's just, you know, there's no mechanical feedback is what it is, what it boils down to. When you, when you shift something on a console and you hear the clicks and you feel the detente, you know what gear you're in. You, you, you don't necessarily have to look, you know, you're in drive, you know how far it's traveled, but, and Chrysler got into a lot of trouble with this. And in fact, someone might have more than one person might've been injured by this kind of thing. Mm. When Chrysler went to a non-mechanical linkage on its center, center console shift selectors, um, people got confused. People did not know if they were in park or not. They did not. It was very, very easy to move from park to drive and get stuck in reverse or get get stuck in neutral and not know. Um, and people were crushed or hit by cars that rolled because they thought that they were in a gear that they weren't. And um, they, they that design is no longer available from FCA. It's gone back to a mechanical linkage. And uh, the Mercedes one isn't dangerous in the same way because it doesn't allow you to make the same types of mistakes. But it is not. it, it is in the same way um from a um what, what's the word i'm looking for um when you're when, it's not intuitive right. it, you don't you have know to get, you, you definitely you have to get tell. used to it and you have to you you sort of like have to become one with your car and know what know how far yeah. exactly you need to you need to nudge it down what indentation you need to feel before it goes into drive or neutral instead um and and you really hit it on the head though when you said uh it's you, you get to be one you have to be one with your car <laughs> You you and I no no hear me out here. You and I are journalists and we change cars okay. all the time. We drive a different we drive a different car almost every yep. week, right? So we're not the majority of people. The majority of people get in their car, 
They've driven that car for years. They understand how it works. They're not necessarily going to get confused like you and I. Um, and I think that sometimes I lose sight of that when I'm writing mm-hmm. a review, especially when it comes to like you know infotainment systems and whether it's confusing or intuitive. Uh, so there's probably a little bit of familiarity that you know if you're a Mercedes owner, you'll get used to it. Blah blah right. blah. Uh, this although that does bring up a, a story I think you know. Um, I think we were on a drive program together. And we were driving around, and I tried to put the car, whatever car we had, in reverse. And I did that by yanking on the stock on the right-hand side, like which is how you would do it in, in, um, I guess, a Mercedes or something. And I ended up turning the the windshield wipers on like full blast, and you like lost it. You like started <laughs> laughing at me so hard, and I was like, "Oh right, I'm in the wrong. I'm not in that kind of car," um, which is. Yeah, Sam, Sammy leads a life of, of extensive privilege wherein he assumes every vehicle he's in is just a, just another Mercedes. I mean, you know what? I, I can't remember what car it was in, but I just I remember you like looking at I, me like, what do you do? And I did it like twice or three times. So I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that, too. It might have been it might have been um, it was either the uh, the Lincoln um, MKZ. Oh, yes. Or... Which, oh, yeah, see, that makes sense because that as well doesn't have a, um, a gear selector in the center console, right? Yeah, it has the it has the push-button gears on the dash, so that was definitely Oh, a... God, <laughs> that was embarrassing. So what <laughs> would you prefer um, if you couldn't have a gear stick in the center console? Do you prefer the push-button? Do you prefer the console? Um, you know, I, mean, sorry, the... I like, the, I like the, the push-buttons are fine. I don't have a problem with it. I mean, I think the reason Lincoln catches heat for those push-buttons is because they're great big plastic. Yeah, they're not pretty. <laughs> um, and I like... I, I I don't know if I like the way it kind of like cycles. Like when you hit D, every single letter, like so P, R, and all lights up as it goes to D. And it's just like, no, I just want it and like just go to D now. <laughs> and, and, and I know you want to get to the D as soon as you can. And the, that that's not a new concept either. Push button transmissions have been around since what? The yeah. Early 60s, yeah. Maybe, even the, maybe even the late 50s. Um, so, you know, car companies have been trying out different interfaces since the beginning of, you know, time basically uh i personally you know buttons are fine with me if, if there's going to be a stock just have it make yeah, sense and don't do those you ones know, that and... don't make sense like the cadillac uh, xd5 um which i think was also in the uh buick envision that we had as well which like in order to put it into reverse you have to push it up and over in this like like hard to understand way the first like couple of times you do it yeah, it's it's there should never be. I mean, we've already standardized PRMDL, yeah. right? It, it, it's it's like that for a reason, you know. It's 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 nice to do different things. Like I said earlier, I like the perfume, <laughs> but at the same time, people should be able to get in a car and drive it because driving a car is complicated and dangerous enough <laughs> without putting barriers in between uh, understanding basic functions. And before I change uh, the subject on this one, um, at least when they change. When they change the the type of gear selector you have, uh, if you move it up or off the the center console, it allows for more uh, storage space, which I think is really cool. But some automakers do not yes. take advantage of this. I'm looking at like maybe the way Acura and the Acura does it on their selector, their like button selector at the bottom, which is really weird. Uh, and it just takes up space in the center console. And I'm like, no, you, think you wasted an opportunity here. If you're gonna make buttons, put it somewhere <laughs> it... like where we can, or, or or put something there that we can use. And it's a similar argument for parking brakes, right. right? Like the the move to electronic parking. Right, brakes. you can put that anywhere and take advantage of of, of moving it around and, and getting some freeing up some space elsewhere in the car. I think it's an important it's an important part of car design, modern car design. 
So you mentioned we were gonna we were gonna segue topics. What's what's next on the uh, Can I talk to you about snow for a sec? It's snowing, yes. man. It is snowing right here in Toronto, and uh, I'm petrified because for the first um, time ever, I'm not running snow tires or winter tires on my car, which is a, a sports car, rear-wheel drive uh, Scion FRS, and I typically have... Wait, why are you not doing that? Because I have some all-seasons that I'm, I'm, I need to test out, and I'm actually very afraid of doing so. Yeah, wow. high-performance all-season tires from Cooper, um, which I have never, ever run on my car, and typically I would never do that, but uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. I want to know how, how good uh, all-season tires have become, and what a high-performance all-season tire will what that would mean in cold weather and well i can t- i can tell you where i live what you're doing is illegal uh illegal uh not until the 15th isn't it okay, that's well, correct still but good. do you have a snow do you have a snowflake no, on the side of the, of the it has sidewalk m and s uh symbols yeah that's bullshit m and s means nothing <laughs> no i'm sorry but m and s tires are the biggest scam <laughs> you'll ever encounter okay one of the biggest scams and you'll ever and encounter in the entire business. We're about to run into uh, rant number two from Ben Hunting in this <laughs> podcast. No, I'm just saying. So uh, I don't. For our listeners who aren't familiar, the tire business <laughs> is pretty much entirely unregulated. <laughs> so tire companies can advertise a lot of stuff. They can say a lot of things about their tires, and um, for the most part, it's meaningless. It's just marketing. Um, so exceptions are the snowflake. The snowflake on a sidewall of a tire means that the rubber compound in the tire has been engineered so that it will not stiffen or harden up or freeze at low below temperatures. Seven, below that's seven degrees like you, like other tires. Below seven degrees. That's correct. And for our American friends, that's 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So that is that is a universal standard that is accepted. But mud and snow <laughs> – so it's funny because you know if you have a tire that has mud and snow on it but it uh, on the sidewall but doesn't have the snowflake – then how does that I even work? Know. You're like, basically <laughs> what snow? Like what snow is is? Are they using? As long as it's as long as it's snowing at eight <laughs> yeah. degrees outside, you're gonna be fine. Yeah. You know, it's just it's just it's just a way to sell an aggressive tread comp an aggressive tread pattern to people who don't really want to buy winter tires. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, on the flip side of this coin, continuing my rant. If you are buying high-performance tires, tread wear is another thing that means absolutely right. nothing. Um, you'll see a tread wear rating on the side, and, and once you get around the 200 level, that's when you start to see that's what a high-performance summer tire is. 200 is – the lower the number, the faster your tires wear out. But um, car companies are – sorry, tire companies – uh, love to expand their markets. So let's say there's a major spec racing series, like say Spec Miata. And Spec Miata says, okay, everyone in this series has to run a Treadwear 200 minimum tire. All of a sudden, tires that the year before were rated at 125 are suddenly rated at 200 with no changes to the compound. That's because there's no objective way of measuring tire wear or compound softness. So the car companies can I say car companies tire, yeah. the tire companies can play fast and loose with these ratings as much as they want. Okay, I'm gonna stop. Okay, talking. well I mean I, there has been I have driven in them now on the lightest amount of snow, and I can say that um, my car is it was still had traction. And that's as far as I want to test it. I think I'm going to put my winter tires on um, probably this weekend or early during the week next, before, right before the, the serious snow hits. Um, what was the uh, braking? What was the braking? The braking like? was um, it was noticeably uh, it, like a little bit vague. Sorry, noticeably vaguer than than in the dry. 
but uh, the steering and, and handling felt uh, still pretty solid. That's uh, that's I, I have I've had the misfortune in the last two weeks. Um, the press vehicles I've been driving had all seasons mm-hmm. as well because the and we ended up having some snow unexpectedly. Well, I mean whatever it's winter, and uh, the braking was the thing. I was driving a Forester and the traction was fine, but stopping on those tires was on one day we had particularly heavy snow, and it froze a little bit underneath. And wow, yeah, it was not. Uh, it was Did it trigger time. ABS? Well, the, uh, okay. yes, um, but. And and it triggered ABS all the way into the middle Ooh, of the intersection. Oh, jeez, what a t- t- that's terrifying. Um, all right, wow. I mean, and I want to I want to stress that's not a failure of the car. That's entirely a, t- a tire thing. It's, it's nothing wrong with the Forester. It's just you get you got to have the right tire. For the all right, and I mean, you know what? While we're talking about winter and uh, and driving in in the winter, how about uh, some of the news that came out this week? Uh, let's let's just segue segue right into that. Um, Chrysler or Dodge actually confirmed. A new Challenger called the GT All-Wheel Drive, which will pack all-wheel drive with a with an eight-speed transmission. How, what do you think of that? That sounds like a great idea. Um, I like it. It's not really anything new, while at the same time being something new. Because um, which I can yeah. explain. Well, I mean, it's the LX mm-hmm. platform, right? The Challenger rides on the LX platform, and we've had all-wheel drive versions of the LX platform mm-hmm. before, from Chrysler for the 300 and right. Charger, the uh, the the sedan. Uh, but we never had an all-wheel drive Challenger, and uh, never. And that would be really cool. I, I think it would be a great, uh, a, a good little package. Except for, um, I don't mind the transmission option, but what about the engine option? I mean, I think they're only going to come with a V6. Do you think that's okay? That's, well, you know, here's the thing. The, the Challenger is a cool car that I like a lot. I love the style. I love the design. It's comfortable to drive. It's very, very, very heavy. And that 3.6 liter engine, I like it, but it's not best served in a car that size. Uh, it's gonna, it, it'll drive fine, but there's no real performance aspect to it. You already can't buy a Challenger V6 with a manual transmission. They're all eight speeds. So that's just right. how it is. And with the all-wheel drive in the equation, that wasn't right. gonna change. I think, I think this is an interesting opportunity for, so the Challenger is an older vehicle. Um, it's going to be replaced within the next couple of years. There's, there's a next generation car coming, but this is a great way for Chrysler to sup up some remaining customers who are maybe on the fence about buying a Challenger because they lived in a winter climate and they love the styling, but they're like, ah, I don't know if I can live without all wheel drive, which they totally can, <laughs> but maybe they thought they couldn't. Um, so it's, it's a win-win for Chrysler. They're going to get those customers. It keeps people interested in a car that's starting to age. And um, it's it's you know Mustang and Camaro don't have this option. Uh, I know that that's I think to me that's the most interesting part is it now kind of like etches out this niche that wasn't there before. Is there a is there other are there other um, all-wheel drive coupes at this size and price point? Um, <laughs> at that size, I don't think okay, anything is as at big that as price the Challenger. Point, I think it, <laughs> um, that you could that you could compare directly to a Challenger all-wheel drive. I think I don't think so, and I think that's really cool. I no, think that's a really interesting. So um, you know, it fills a very weird white space that wasn't there before. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, kudos to to FCA for shaking things up and keeping it interesting. Um, there was some other uh, more fun news that came out uh, this week as well. Um, how about? A new Fast movie, a new Fast and the Furious movie. What do you think about this? We all knew it was coming, so it's not. This is again not new. Not new. Oh my goodness! So Sammy hooked me up with the trailer just before just before we we got on the uh, the call, and um, 
What do you wow. think of this name? Uh, the, the, the Fate of the Furious. I think the name is ridiculous. It makes me think of those, like, 60s-era, like, Clash of the Titans-style movies, you know? Like, Hands of Fate and Cla- Clash of the Titans and and the furious anger of heaven. Like, it, it's just, it's overly dramatic. And uh, I, I watched the trailer, and my takeaway from the 15-second teaser was there were skidoos, snowmobiles, and what looked like some kind of tank on a glacier. Mm-hmm. All, all known for being in the Fast and the Furious franchise now, right? Any, there are, there's yeah, no limits now. <laughs> Remember back in the first movie, back in 2001, when they were saying grace in the backyard before they ate that yeah. chicken, and Jesse, RIP, said, I, I, I'm thankful for tanks that can drive on glaciers and blast away our enemies as they pursue us across a global landscape of terror and destruction. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. And, and, and then he got into his Jetta <laughs> that his dad owned, but his dad was in prison, so he drove it. And then he went and he he, he lost that race to Johnny Tran. No, man, what are you talking about? Do you remember no, all that? No, I can't quite remember it all. All right, but, anyway. Uh, there is a serious <laughs> – first of all, I'm disappointed that they didn't use, like, license plate lingo for Fate. They could have – because, first of all, it was the eighth Fast and the Furious movie. They, could have, they should have done something there with it. You're you're 100. Right. I'm disappointed about that. And uh, two, there's not enough usage of the word family in the teaser, and I I definitely think there's supposed to be at least one uh, one sentence with the word family um, in it for each tanks of fa- <laughs> tanks of yeah, family for each time they change gears. <laughs> That's the ratio. You know, it's 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 totally a missed opportunity to not have eight in there. I mean, we've already had we've had Fast Five, yeah. right? We've had Too Fast, Too Furious. I mean, what's going on? We can't do anything with nine. Yeah. Unless it's like nine fast lives yeah. or some bullshit <laughs> like that. <laughs> I mean, there is going to be a ninth That's movie. right. There will, because this movie is going to make $2 billion at the box <laughs> office. This movie is the most reliable economic generator on the planet. It's better than real estate, for, that's for sure. Forget real estate, forget defense contractors. It's the Fast and the Furious franchise that is driving this economy. Uh-huh. What about one more thing, though? We, we've got one more thing we've got to talk about before we, we wrap up this podcast. And, podcast. and it's becoming, I think it's going to become a regular feature. It's our uh, weird Audi press release of the week. What do you think of that idea? <laughs> I, I think it's the gift that keeps giving thanks to the geniuses in Audi's PR department who are seemingly dedicated to giving us awesome material to work with. Okay, so here's here's a, uh, a press release that I found that uh, that is labeled Automatic Intelligent Parking. Automatic Intelligent Parking. Audi at NIPS in Barcelona. What's NIPS, Sammy? NIPS, let me tell you, is the Conference and Workshop on Neural Information Processing Systems. Were you at the? Were you at this? No, it was NIPS? in Barcelona, and I had. I usually don't go to Nips. I just don't typically go to Nips. Well, Nips is going on right now. <laughs> December fifth uh, to tenth. Yes, that's right. That's right. I also did not attend, nor was I at Nips okay. last year. Well, they showed Audi showed off something at Nips called the Audi Q2 Deep Learning Concept. Okay, are you are you with me here? And all it does is demonstrate an intelligent an intelligent parking process. But what's fun about this car is that it's not a car; it's a one eighth scale it's model a remote car. Remote control. It's a toy. 
It's a tiny little car, and it parks in an area that measures three by three meters. <laughs> it, it, I'm sorry. It drives along, and it scans for a spot, I think, yeah. using ten ultrasonic sensors. And then its deep learning system tells it if it can park or not. Um, it's actually pretty cute, too. It looks like a it looks like a badass A3, like an A3 hatch from, like, a couple of years ago. Um, and it's got all these sensors on the bumper. Uh but I just love the fact that like, so this is this is cool technology, but where Audi is pulling ahead is once again with how they refer to their technology. It, it's not enough that this is that they're looking at you know self-parking cars, but they decided to apply deep learning <laughs> to the 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 age-old problem of how will I park. <laughs> I love the idea and of deep me, learning just to find a parking spot. Just to find, you know, and parking is hard. It sucks. I mean, what, city of San Francisco has something like one million more cars than it has parking spots? Oh Some, something crazy like that? That is a deep learning yeah, problem. The, Audi need, that Audi the car turn, needs to think about it turn, seriously, deeply. Exactly. Direct this technology where it can help people the most. But uh, it's an artif- there's artificial intelligence uh, research going on here in the parking world. Uh, and Audi is at the forefront of that with this with this car. Or I'm sorry, this 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 concept, this scale model. <laughs> I like that we keep breaking it down, cutting it down to size every single time. This car, this concept, well, this so scale model. <laughs> the project, it's funny. It goes the model's car's parking ability is made possible by deep reinforcement learning, similar to what I experienced yeah. at boarding school. What could that mean? What happens it, it, if it so if it doesn't get the right spot? What do they do to it? They beat it. They like lock it away. They. It's not they clear. Put a virus it, in they it. say. It says the system essentially learns through trial and error. To begin, the car selects its direction. <laughs> That's how I learned to park. To begin, the car selects its direction of travel at random. An algorithm autonomously identifies the successful actions, thus continually refining the parking strategy. So in the end, the system is able to solve even difficult problems autonomously. Now, Identify as a successful action. So I guess the unsuccessful actions are when it hits stuff, <laughs> right? Like, it, I, mean, I, that I don't would know. Be an there's no video- parking job in my opinion. Oh, there is a there's a video. Yeah. I didn't watch. The, don't the video. worry, they don't show it hitting anything. Oh well, then I'm gonna not watch because <laughs> that's why I was watching. <laughs> it's got some dramatic music and some racing imagery, but uh, anyway, I, I've turned it off. But um, yeah. So again. This is right up there with uh, Smart mm-hmm. Hobos. And Mission to the Moon. With Mission to the Moon. Now we have deep learning to help you park. One. So it's outstanding work from um, Audi's intelli- intelligence and artificial intelligence research. Um, you know, as much as we, we, we sort of uh, have a laugh at this kind of stuff, there's no other car company that's doing this kind of thing. There's no, no one else is really stepping up their press release game. Uh, to combat what Audi's doing. Audi owns the high-tech press release space right I love now. it. And uh, you know what? They really push the limits in that se- in that segment, really. Um, I will admit, though, it is it is very important to, sh- to talk about this kind of stuff um, and, and to showcase it. They're just hoping that someone talks about it, and what do you know? That's exactly what we're doing. <laughs> It's exactly, and we weren't even no. at Nips. We weren't even in, we weren't even in Barcelona, and we're still interested in this. So can well I done. admit that I have well no done. idea? I had no idea what Nips was, and well, that's because we're not in the neural information processing systems universe. I mean, at least I'm not. I, I left that world behind 
to uh, enter automotive. But as our cars become more, you know, autonomous, I think we're going to have to you're going to have to go back into um, into, into self no. and deep learning journalism. As I've <laughs> deep learning journalism. Wow. I don't think that's a thing. But um, <laughs> I can tell you that, as I've said before on this program, on the record, once cars become autonomous, I am no longer interested in reporting okay. on them. It's just it's just not my thing. I mean, I am not against them. But at that point, I'm going to be, you know, I'll, I'll take up a, a blog about something. All right. Else. Well, fortunately, that hasn't happened yet. And uh, we have completed another wonderful podcast uh, this week. What do you think of that? I think that uh, I'm in total agreement with you. And uh, what's coming up next for you, Sammy? Do you have anything on the horizon? I know it's uh, it's December and things are starting to slow things down. Things are definitely slowing down. Um, I'm just tr- – I think I told you about this. I have been um, just planning my way around CES and um, the Detroit Auto Show. CES seems to get busier and busier every week, every day I think about it. Uh, I keep reaching out and finding yeah. out more information about what's going to show off um, at CES, including what's going to be at CES and what won't be at, De- at uh, the Detroit Auto Show a week later, which is a, a very interesting uh, story, which we can talk about next week, I think. You're right. That sounds good. And um, uh, to everyone else out there who would like to reach out to Sammy and inform him of what's happening at CES. Oh, please don't. If you want to inf- overload... If you if you have something that you think he should see and are demanding that he tell you about on the next on on the podcast after CES, you can do that at on Twitter with at uh, Sammy underscore ha. That's ha like laughing. And um, if you want to reach me, you can do it on Twitter as well. It's at hunting Benjamin, or you can use email Benjamin at benjaminhunting.com. Uh, well, that's a great place to reach both of us. And, um, we would really, honestly, I would really look forward to, to any of you guys saying, uh, hello, what's up saying what you like about the podcast, what you don't, uh, give us a rating on any of the different uh, platforms you can reach us, uh, at or whatever one you use. We're on iTunes, we're on Google play music and we're on SoundCloud. And we, we're on SoundCloud and we are on unnamed automotivepodcast.com, which will take you directly to our SoundCloud hosted. Uh, there you files. go. So thanks everyone for listening and uh, we hope you have a great week ahead and we'll uh, hear from you next week. What do you think? Sounds good. Thank Bye. you. everyone.